Lord, this morning I want to lift up, first of all, another church in our community. I want to pray for Cornerstone Fellowship and Trent Brown. Uh, I want to pray for Trent and Natalie. Uh, Lord, first and foremost, I want to pray for their marriage. pray that they are enjoying each other, that they are um, growing and really walking in the gospel and putting the gospel on display as Trent loves Natalie as Christ loved the church. And Natalie, Trent, as the church, should enjoy and adore Christ. And um, I pray that their children see the gospel that is familiar to them because of what they're seeing um, probably uh, imperfectly played out at home. And I just pray that as they grow in their marriage, as they grow in worship, that those things are intertwined. And that Trent's ministry to uh, Cornerstone Fellowship will come as an overflow from that ministry uh, to Natalie and his family. Lord, we pray, too, for Cornerstone Fellowship, uh, sort of a new um, connection of two churches. Lord, we pray for the ministry there, that it will be something that will be uh, glorifying to you. We pray that it will be word-driven, spirit-fueled, um, I pray, too, that there is a plurality of leadership, just thinking about the things that you have given this body that I think has protected us, uh, that are very obviously biblical, how you've given us a tremendous amount of protection as a church and guiding us and, and guided us. I pray that for this church as well, Lord, that you would, uh, whatever expectations they may bring to design and movement, that all of it would ultimately be fueled by, by your word and your Holy Spirit. I pray that the outcome there would be that a people are equipped to be salty, bright, and aromatic in Caddo and Royce City and Greenville, wherever their members may be from. Uh, Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity to lift up this fellow church, a sister church in our community this morning. Uh, to this morning, Lord, we want to lift up one of our brothers, one of our older brothers who is in what appears to be his final weeks of earthly life, at least this earth. I want to pray for Billy Vaughn. And um, Lord, first of all, we want to thank you that uh, what you're working in him seems to be as we are coming alongside him in these last few days or months, whatever he may have, seems to be really a walking illustration of the book of Hebrews, of finishing well. Thankful that uh, Billy is a beautiful picture of a man who hasn't always made every step well, but who has plotted and continued and stayed on the train until these final days where he has finished finished the race uh, and finishing the race in these uh, next few weeks or days that he has left. I, I pray, too, that we as a church can get up next to that testimony that's being lived out right now and that we can spend time with him right across the street, Legacy, that he will be uh, visited often, ministered to, prayed for, and that we together will enjoy the story that you've wrought in him and the, thing, the, the sweet privileges you've given us of being part of it. Thankful for Billy, thankful for his worship, thankful for you and him. Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray that we will be faithful to eat well, that we'll be big people, and um, that we'll bring you glory in the way we spend it as we enjoy our groom. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. As you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of context. I'm not sure context. It may just be preparing you for what we're doing this morning. The book of Hebrews, there's a word used in the book of Hebrews that's used more than any other book in our Bible. And it's the word better. The book of Hebrews really is one example after another of Christ being better than something that's good. It's a book of contrasts. I shared that with you last week. It's not a book of contrasts of horrible and good or bad and good. It's a, it's a contrast of good and great. And the first couple of chapters are given to angels. Jesus is better than angels. You're comparing something that's good, God's messengers, over the story of this uh, nation of Israel to something that's great in Jesus. Jesus is better than Moses. Moses was good, but Jesus is great. Jesus is better than Joshua in chapter 4. 
Joshua was great, leading his people through the conquest into the promised land. But Jesus is even better. It's a book of contrast, contrasting good with great. And that contrast continues today, last week and today, and really over the next few weeks as we consider something that was very good, the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. I called it that last week from the word Aaron, from Aaron's name, Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood was good compared to something great, the whole new order of Christ, the great high priest that was and is Christ. I want to give you a warning this morning too. This is big people food. If you know where we are in Hebrews, you know that we're in a passage really that the preacher or pastor both really in this case, this book of Hebrews is a sermon. It's a sermon from a pastor to his church. He's not with there physically at the moment. He's begun this argument or this development with them, this new contrast between the Aaronic priesthood and Christ as high priest, but midstream he stopped to really warn them and really challenge them with with some concerns. And you remember that little section there that we took at, or we stopped for about four weeks worth of sermon there where we considered these stark warnings and these strong encouragements And then he moved back into his argument about Christ as high priest and um, the better high priest. The main point that he's making there when he starts that warning is that I want to develop this thing for you, Hebrews Church, but what I'm concerned about is you guys are drinking milk, and I'm concerned that you're not going to get it. So he made the warning, and then he moved right back into his story, feeding them some steak. Whether they could handle it or not, he moved right back on into it all the way through the end, really, of chapter 10. And one of the things that we enjoyed together as a church, whatever we might be, milk drinkers or meat eaters, we can be encouraged that what God did for us in this book of Hebrews and what he's done for us as a church and the way these sermons unfolded, wherever you might find yourself sitting, he's equipping us as a church to eat meat for the next, at this point, next five or six weeks. Last week, this week, and the next five or six weeks. To be equipped to eat what he's calling meat. It's so important. We've got a church in Rome, likely in Rome. A church that's suffering. A church that's being persecuted. Likely by Rome. Likely by their own family members. Their own Jewish, non-Christian family members. And they're considering going back to Judaism. And here's what he's equipping them with. Not three steps to a happy marriage. Nothing wrong with that. Not two steps to managing your money and getting out of debt. Nothing wrong with that. He's equipping this church on the bubble with Christ as high priest. It's some good medicine for that church. Whether they thought it or not, this pastor thought it. And this word is fueled by the Holy Spirit. So we're going to trust that this is good medicine for us as a people as well. It's big people food. One of the hard things about preaching big people food is you see a distractedness. Because if if you're going to preach verse by verse, not every verse is going to be big people food. Some passages are going to be about the ABCs. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. You have to build on something. But those Sundays where you're preaching big people food and that's all it is, where you don't walk away with three steps to anything, you just sit as big people and dine on something really meaty and heavy, is there's a visual difference. (laughs) As I'm seeing the difference and the contrast between something that has lots of application and is really simple and really good and something that's more mature and big people oriented, I feel like sometimes, maybe you've been to a restaurant at times where you've seen a a man and woman, sometimes a young guy and his young bride, you can tell they hadn't been married long, sitting across the table from each other at a nice restaurant, and he's sitting there on his iPhone. You just want to say, hey, dude, get off your phone and enjoy your beautiful young bride right there. That's the way I feel sometimes preaching if I see distractedness in something that's so beautiful. So I'm encouraging you. It's not a criticism. I'm encouraging you. You have to focus. Put your iPhone down. <laughs> 
You have to focus in a sermon like this because it's big people food. I'm warning you, preparing you, that if you get distracted, do the best you can to come back to it because it's meant for big folk. Okay. Hebrews chapter 7. What I plan to do for the morning is we're going to break the sermon up into two chunks. Two major chunks with little minor chunks within. Two major pieces. The first major piece is going to go set chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. The second major chunk is going to go verse 11 all the way through verse 19. You know if you've been with, with us on this journey through Hebrews that this is a major, for us to preach what is 19 verses in one sermon is going to be a major deal for us. It's not going to necessarily mean a really long sermon, but it's going to be big people food though, nonetheless. I'm going to break this up into two pieces, verses 1 through 7, in two chunks, really three chunks. And then verses um, 11 through 19 in one piece. Okay, chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Now turn to Genesis chapter 14. You can keep, keep your hand in, or keep a little... I have a Doc McStuff, McStuffins Valentine card that somebody gave me that is my, my uh, bookmark. It's going to stay in Hebrews there. And the rest, and we can turn over to Genesis chapter 14. We're going to learn about a total mystery man this morning. This guy's name is Melchizedek. And chapter 14 is just one of the funniest chapters in the Bible to me. Funny as in just strange. It's the story of these kings that are warring with each other. Four kings versus five kings. And then there's Abraham. He's Abram at this point. No name Abraham sitting out there in Canaan. And we've got these Canaanite kings that are warring with one another. And Abraham is probably just a spectator of this whole, whole thing until one of his family members is taken in one of the battles. We're going to pick up in verse 11 of chapter 14. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah. You may remember who's living in Sodom at that time. Abraham's nephew... Lot. Okay, so kind of presenting the characters because it's all going to kind of come together here in a minute. The enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. <clears throat> now, verse 13. Then one who had escaped from, or who had escaped, came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, you can almost hear the sort of Clint Eastwood moment there, where Clint Eastwood just kind of under his breath says, they did what? <laughs> they took Lot. He spits chewing tobacco on a scorpion, and then he says, okay, we're going to do something about this. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house. Like he's got this major military force of 318 men that can locate, close with, and destroy the enemy by fire and maneuver. I mean, these are like gladiator types, 318 of them, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Abram got the job done. He was bad to the bone. I mean, I'm pretty impressed with Abram. He's not just some old shepherd. I mean, he can get the job done. He's high speed, low drag. Ricky Recon, he can take care of business. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. So the king of Sodom comes out to meet Abram after his victory. Forget the king of Sodom for a minute, and let's see who comes out next. 
And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is the passage our Hebrews preacher is grabbing in this sermon that he's sharing with his church, encouraging them to continue. He grabs mystery Mel as somebody he's going to make a point with. So let's go back to Hebrews. You maybe keep your, put your, your Doc McStuffins thing over there in Genesis 14. And now we'll keep Hebrews 7 in view and try to figure out what in the world this guy is doing here when he brings out Mystery Mel. There are four cool things that we can connect to about Melchizedek that are going to help us understand the point that he's making about Christ as high priest. And what I want to do in these next few minutes is consider the four things that we can glean right from this passage about Melchizedek. First of four, he is priest and king. First of all, he's priest of El Elyon. That's the word that's used over there meaning God most high. God has different names in our Old Testament. There might be El Shaddai, God Almighty. There might be El Roy, the God who sees. Here it's God, or the, the El Elyon, God most high. Abram refers to him later in the passage as Yahweh El Elyon to tell us that El Elyon is in fact our God, Abram's God, Yahweh. He's not just talking about some random, strange Canaanite God. Melchizedek is a priest of Abram's God. Just let that hit you for a minute. We're talking about in Canaan. We're talking about in a pagan land. Here a priest pops up, a priest of Abram's God. It is remarkable to me that God would raise up such an important figure in such a dark, godless place. It just seems so familiar to me as I thought about that for a moment. And I thought about John the Baptist talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and saying this, Do not presume to say to yourselves, Pharisees and Sadducees, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. I'm looking at Canaan, I'm looking at Salem, we'll talk about where that is in a minute. And thinking about a priest of El Elyon just pops up from nowhere. How did that happen? Well, God made that happen because God can do that. That ought to really in some ways sort of give our missionaries, all of us should be missionaries to some degree, but all of our missionaries should have perspective there realizing that it's God who opens the eyes of the heart. He sends us to the far corners of the field and we are agents of that. We are a means of him doing his work, but he doesn't need us. It's important to connect to. It's not a major point of the sermon, but just... Encouraging to put some perspective there that God can make worshipers from stones. And he does it here with the king, in this case, priest of Elion, the king of Salem. Now it's likely this Salem is an early name for Jerusalem. Geographically where they are here in Genesis chapter 14, near Dan, and in the valley of the kings... That's very near Jerusalem. So this king and priest that comes out is likely the king of Salem. That's where Jerusalem gets its name. Salem means, well, we'll talk about the meaning of that in a moment. I want to save that. First, I want to point out, though, that this guy is king and priest. You remember last week we talked about the reality that the nation of Israel likely was looking for either a kingly messiah are a priestly Messiah. But only the wise ones were looking for both. And I, it's a wonder how many actually were looking for both. But as we see this guy, this Melchizedek, we saw, see a guy that is both king and priest. No one else in our Bibles before Christ served this role as king 
and priest. The only example that I can think about of anything even coming close was Saul trying to act like a priest, and that didn't go very well. There's kings, and there's priests. This guy is both. That's the first thing. Second thing, he blessed Abraham after the battle. He blessed him with words that are very God-centric. Everything about the blessing had to do with really not how great you are, Abram, but how great God is. And he blessed him with bread and wine. We'll talk about the bread and wine later this morning. But it's very God-directed praise. It's not, Abram, you are bad to the bone. I cannot believe how you took out those kings. It wasn't, Abram, I loved how you zigged when he zagged and you took care of business out there. It wasn't, Abram, you were quite the strategist. I had no idea. It was God-centric, the blessing. And it made much of God as he blesses Abraham with words and he blesses him with sustenance, real nourishment, food and drink for a war-weary follower of God. Keep that in mind for later on this morning. That's the second thing about Melchizedek. The third thing that we can learn from this passage is that he is king of righteousness and king of peace from verse 2 there. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. The word in the Hebrew for his name is really two words. It's Melik Kezik. Melik means, excuse me, it's Malki. I, I'm, I don't speak Hebrew as a first language, so give me a little room there. Malki is the first name, and that means King Zedek is the second name, and that means righteousness. He is Malki Zedek, king of righteousness, and he is king of Salem. I told you I would tell you what Salem means. Salem is where we get the word shalom, or actually Salem comes from the word shalom, which means peace. So he is king and priest. He blesses Abraham and he's king of righteousness and king of peace. Now let's continue on in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 3. Here's where things get really, really weird. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. All right, he seems to parachute into the story. If you're reading the story, if you read the book of Genesis, you see genealogies, you see details everywhere, and then there's Melchizedek that seems to not only parachute in, but also to be extracted in some way that doesn't make any sense. It's just like undercover. How does he come into the story? How does he come out to the story? We don't know. He just seems to just show up. And it should cause us to ask some questions that likely you've asked before. Scott and I have had a number of conversations about who is Mystery Mel. Is he an angel? that just popped up. God just called this angel to go bless Abraham. Is he some superhuman being? Not an angel, but some other sort of being that actually didn't have a birth or a death. No mom or dad. No beginning or end. Or is he what some people think is a cameo of Jesus? That is a possibility. There's some really strong people that would suggest this is Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. That is a, certainly a possibility, but we don't know that for sure. What seems to be taking place here is he does, in fact, parachute in, and he's extracted out without any sort of explanation in a literary sense. For the writer of the book of Genesis, there's so much detail about mom and dad, birth, life, death, Explanation about nearly every character that's presented in the book of Genesis, except for Melchizedek. In a literary sense, he does in fact just show up. There's no mom or dad. There's no list of genealogy. There's no explanation about when he was born, where he comes from, or how he died. We have nothing on this dude. So in a literary sense, he just fell out of the sky. No mom, no dad. No beginning, no end of days. Keep that in mind for later on this morning. 
those four things. He is first, priest and king. Second, he blesses Abraham. Third, he's king of righteousness and king of peace. And fourth, he just seems to just show up. Seems to be, at least in a literary sense, eternal, having no beginning and no end. Now, the Hebrews preacher is going to compare the order of Aaron. Keep all those four things in view here for a moment. The Hebrews preacher is going to compare the order of Aaron, or the Levitical priesthood, with a new order, the order of Melchizedek. It's not, in fact, a new order. It's one that existed before the order of the Levites. But in their mind, it's relatively new, at least in this connection. But it's one this Hebrews preacher, this thought has been developing over the course of Hebrews already. There are a number of passages where he's mentioned Melchizedek. Chapter 5, verse 6. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, referencing Psalm 110. He gives no explanation at that point why he's talking about mystery Mel. Later on, in chapter 6, verse 20. He sort of finished that little warning section and the section where he's encouraging them. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then in chapter 7, he mentions him yet again in verse 17. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He is making a very important contrast here with Melchizedek. He's been planning it for a while. What I want you to see now at this point in the sermon is that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. We talk about types or shadow and substance at this church often because they are everywhere in our Bibles. They were a very common instrument, literary instrument, in ancient writings, in ancient thought. There were types and there were anti-types. I was racking my brain this week and this morning trying to figure out an example, a contemporary example of type and anti-type. And I could not for the life of me think of an example because it's sort of an ancient thing. Type and anti-type. Melchizedek is a type where Christ is the anti-type. The type is the shadow. The anti-type is the substance There are many examples in our Bible, some that might be familiar to you. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, type, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, anti-type. Shadow, substance. Shadow that helps us make sense of substance. Shadow that helps us anticipate substance. Man, it is a beautiful instrument when you connect to it. Noah, type. Christ, anti-type. Moses, type. Christ, anti-type. Consider just a few weeks ago, Isaac, type. Jesus, anti-type. Isaac is shadow. Christ is substance. He's doing that with Melchizedek this morning. For he did it 2,000 years ago. We're considering what he did this morning with type and anti-type. Let's continue on in verse 4, and we're going to connect all this in a moment. See how great this man was, Hebrews Church, Crosspoint Fellowship. See how great Mystery Mel was. This guy is pretty awesome. Just those four things alone should leave you pretty amazed. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. All right. 
Now, let's go back and grab those four things. We're going to make sense of that little section here in a moment, but I just wanted to go ahead and read that section and connect to this picture and this reality that Melchizedek, according to verse 3, resembles the Son of God, not the other way around. Type resembles antitype. Shadow resembles substance. Melchizedek resembles the Son of God, and this guy is pretty awesome. See how great a man this was to whom Abraham paid tithes? Let's consider those four things that we learned about Melchizedek. Melchizedek was priest and king. Christ, too, is priest and king. First of all, in regards to priest. In our New Testaments, the references to priests end at the book of Acts, except for the book of Hebrews. Once you finish the book of Acts, you don't even see a reference to a priest anywhere except for the priesthood of the believer, stuff like that. But I'm talking about a priest, or Christ's role as priest, except in the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews, man, it is a central truth. Listen to this. In the book of Hebrews, here are the chapters that mention the priesthood and Christ as priest. Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. Chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 13. This whole book is dedicated to continue on, brothers, because Christ is high priest. This book is about Christ as priest. Man, I, I want to go back and read some of those passages. I'm just going to read one just because we were right there last week, just so we can have it in view and see Christ as priest, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, transcendent, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. This is a book about Christ as high priest. We don't have to work real hard to establish that. Now, Christ is also king. We recently had a sermon on this. I'm not going to preach the whole sermon, but I am going to share a few passages. You can jump around with me if you like. I've got the pages marked. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew is probably the most Jewish of our Gospels, and it's interesting that it's also the one that develops the kingship of Christ probably more than any of the other Gospels. Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, the visit of the wise men. They visit King Herod, and they say, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Very familiar passage. The book of Matthew starts out with this message of Christ as king. Later on in chapter 21, beginning in verse 2, the triumphal entry. When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus said to the disciples, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied with a colt to her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt. The foal of a beast of burden. And then you know how it unfolds there. They're singing in the streets. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Hosanna. The king is making his triumphal entry. Chapter 27, verse 11 has another little passage there that points toward his kingship. Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said So, just a few verses later, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. They gathered the whole battalion before them. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head, put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. This is a book about his kingship. Matthew, especially, cover to cover, the book ends. 
say Christ is king because Christ was too, like Melchizedek, priest and king. And I said, was, he is priest and king. Secondly, Christ too blesses his people. Listen to these passages and just see if they sound familiar. Matthew chapter 15, like I said, I've got the pages marked, so I'm going to be really quick. You can turn to Luke 22 if you want to turn somewhere and have something to look at, okay? But unless you really like sword drill quick. Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 32. Jesus called his disciples and said to him, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. They ate and they were satisfied like I bet Melchizedek was, like Abraham was when Melchizedek brought him bread and wine. That's when Jesus fed the 4,000. You may not know that Jesus fed the multitudes more than once. He fed the 4,000, and that's how it went down. And then there's also the account of him feeding the 5,000 in Luke chapter 9. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set them before the crowd. He's blessing the people, and he's feeding the people just like Mystery Mel did. And now look at Luke 22. This will be a very familiar passage to you, hopefully. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. But I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. He's feeding people and blessing people all over the place. Man, that's not all. Luke chapter 24, I'd forgotten about this one and I enjoyed connecting to it. Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus, beginning in verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if, they were, if he were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. He's doing it all over the place. How could we possibly forget about John chapter 21? After he's resurrected, after he's risen and appearing to the disciples, the disciples go on a little fishing trip. At Peter's leadership, Peter's Peter's down in the dumps and they go on a fishing trip and they're out there fishing, catching nothing. And here's how it goes down. Jesus called them ashore. You remember remember Peter didn't want to wait on the boat to paddle ashore, so he swam ashore and likely the boat beat him ashore anyway. Remember that? When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have some breakfast that he had prepared for them on the shore. I love these pictures. When you really start connecting to what Melchizedek did in the shadow, and the type, you begin to see the substance and the anti-type in Christ. You see him all over the place, breaking food and blessing people and giving them sustenance, something they really need. I love that about Jesus. I love, too, that every single week we remember that and we participate in the, in the very same. 
when we take the supper. I love, too, that, that he gives us more than just loaves and some wine. Galatians chapter 3, listen to this passage, a treasured passage. Chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, look else at what, look at what else comes to us through Christ's work as a blessing. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Verse 14, so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. In Christ, the blessing that was for Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That's the Holy Spirit. If all he ever gave us was some bread and something to drink, we might be satisfied in our bellies, but we would need much more. And he's given us so much more in the Holy Spirit. Man, he blesses. And then some. He's priest and king. He blesses his people, and he too is, like Melchizedek, king of righteousness and king of peace. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. I want you to see this passage. Christ too is king of righteousness and king of peace. 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 18, man, this is the gospel in one verse. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous, the king of righteousness, for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to peace or bring us to God at peace with our creator. That verse so nicely summarizes that he is both king of righteousness and king of peace. And you don't want to get that that order out of order because it's only by his righteousness that we find peace with God. It was important to the Hebrews preacher that they got the order that he is king of righteousness and king of peace. And it's something that we would do well to connect to this morning. That Christ, too, is king of righteousness and he's king of peace because he earned it for us through his righteousness. And the fourth thing, you remember Melchizedek's mystery? Remember how he parachuted in and then he's in and out, no explanation? That ambiguity about Melchizedek is divine, divinely inspired. There's as much said about the lack of details on Melchizedek as is said in the details about Melchizedek, especially if he is type of Christ, pointing toward the real substance that is Christ. The divine ambiguity about Melchizedek is ordained to allow for the eternal nature of Christ in his ongoing priesthood. See, every other priest croaked, even the good ones, but not our high priest. And as in the literary sense, Melchizedek didn't croak. We don't see any signs of death. No explanation of his death. And his priesthood in the literary sense continues. So Christ's priesthood continues in a very real sense. We're not talking literary sense here. We're talking real. We're talking substance in Christ. Now, just mentioning Melchizedek, just mentioning Mystery Mel tells us those really cool four things, right? I mean, if we just take the time to sort of break it down, we've got four treasures there. But the Hebrews preacher is saying even more here. Referencing Melchizedek, he is saying even more here in regards to the order that Christ is, the priest that Christ is, the type of priest that Christ is relative, the ironic priesthood. Those three things he's saying essentially, or there are three things, he's saying the order of Melchizedek is better, remember that word, that Hebrews theme, better than the order of the Levites. First, because Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And Levi indirectly paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham's womb. Or his loins. He didn't have a womb. His loins. I forgot the body parts get those mixed up all the time. 
Now, that's just crazy to think about, but the Hebrews preacher is making a point there of superiority. He's making a point here that people have been paying their tithes to the Levites for, at this point, 1,500 years, no, 1,000 years. A thousand years at this point, they're making their tithes to the Levites. And he's saying, you know what? You know what? The Levites pay their tithes to Melchizedek via Abraham's loins. Man. Yeah, he's saying the order of Melchizedek is better and superior. Secondly, is because Melchizedek blessed Abraham, not the other way around. And he makes the point to say, don't we all know that the superior blesses the inferior? That's the second reason. And the third is in verse 8. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. In the other case, by one of whom it's testified that he lives. In the case of the Levites, the tithes are received by dudes that will die. But in this case... They're received by one who's testified that he lives. How many, of y'all, how many times have you sung that on Easter morning? He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. Man, it's testified that he lives, and we are paying tithes to a living priest. Man, yes, the order is better, it's finer, it's superior. No one else in all of Scripture answers the mystery of Melchizedek except for Jesus. The event happened 2,000 years before the Hebrews church where Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. So for 2,000 years, there's a certain amount of mystery in the story of Israel where I imagine Israelites were talking about, man, you got any idea who Melchizedek was? And then David writes a psalm about 1,000 years into that 2,000 years. About 1,000 years before the Hebrews church, David writes a psalm, Psalm 110, referencing Melchizedek and the order of Melchizedek. So they at least have a thousand years where they're bound to be scratching their heads saying, who in the world is this joker and what in the world does he have to do with anything? He's not a Levite and all priests are Levites, right? Well, the mystery is solved in Christ. Melchizedek is the dark outline and the contours where Christ is the fill-in. He's the color. He's the face. He makes sense of all that Melchizedek did. Because Melchizedek is the type and Jesus is the anti-type. Melchizedek is the shadow and Jesus is the substance. Man, it's a new and better order. That's the first part of the message. second part of the message is about half as long, time-wise. But let me just remind you of something. I'm convinced that people don't preach through Hebrews because for the contemporary Christian church, especially in America, we just really don't have any view of, of the priesthood. Like, okay, we were talking about something. I'm not considering going back to Judaism. So what benefit is the book of Hebrews for me? I'm going to give you a little taste of where we're going to land this morning. Anything you could fall back on is inferior to the best. Jesus is better than anything you could fall back on. If there was ever something worth falling back on, it would have been the Levitical system. Because that came from God. That's a good thing. But he says, you know what, that's good. But I'm talking about what's best, what's better, what's great. And he's presented so far a new and better order that is as fine as it comes. It can only be explained. It can only be illustrated through a mystery man that just pops in and pops out and does something pretty awesome when he shows up. Melchizedek. Now we'll finish out the last part of this chapter. Beginning in verse, or this section we're looking at this morning. Beginning in verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 7. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arrive after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. 
For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, Judah, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, one who's become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. You might like that phrase as much as I do. Indestructible life. For it's witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, emphasis on forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. See, Israel needed a better hope. And they had a better hope in Christ. But this church was considering bailing on it, going back to the old one. Israel needed a better hope because sadly, perfection was not attainable through the work of the Levites. Man, you could have the best priest. You could have the best high priest on his best day. He could have all his garments prepared, his ephod, his breastpiece, everything in the right place. He's got all his holy underwear on. He's, he's washed himself. He's cleansed himself. He's following the directions and the instructions to the letter. But yet perfection was not attainable. That word perfection is not talking about perfection like you might think of perfection. The word there means completion. Completion was not attainable through the work of the Levites. As awesome as their work was, completion Our wholeness is another word that you might be able to connect to. Wholeness was not attainable. The words there, completion, wholeness, perfection, mean being made acceptable permanently to God. The priests on their best day could not achieve that. On their best day, they could not get it done. Because what they offered, as as fine as it was, it was imperfect. It was incomplete. It was, hear this word, temporary. Man, you could have the finest lamb. Mm, There's no blemishes on that one. And we're going to follow the instructions just perfectly. But it was temporary. I just happened this last week to be reading through Leviticus in my daily Bible reading. I'm doing, Christy and I are doing a topical reading which kind of puts us in different spots than our typical McShane reading has. And we were going through Leviticus, and there's a whole chapter in Leviticus 15 dedicated to bodily discharges. And it's really a mystery. I mean, you're like, man, ooh, rough. I mean, it's not one you'd really want to camp out long on, but, you know, it was one that I read. I mean, it's in there. It's, it's ordained. It's, you know, it's, um, um, we have to trust that it has authority for something, and um, <laughs> it's got goes into a lot of detail. Not just, I mean, it's about men and women type discharges, and and about how uncleanness is a result from that, and about what needed to take place to become clean. And it was talking about like how something might come unclean just because you became unclean through some sort of discharge, and it could be monthly discharge. You know, it could be. I mean, I don't want to go into a lot of detail there, but. You know, if you got a lot of ladies in the household, you, you, you lay on a bed, and that bed is now unclean. You sit in a chair, and now that chair is unclean. you got a household of gals. I'm thinking like some of y'all that may have just girls. You don't even know where you can sit. Like, uh, um, I'm just going to stand right here. There's a whole chapter dedicated to it with so much detail It's a constant reminder of their unclean condition. It's not something we're familiar with. We're a little bit uncomfortable with the whole notion. But for them, it was a daily reminder of their unclean condition and God's holiness. Because you had to wait for a a time after something happened. I, I hate even saying that word, a discharge again. You had to wait for a period of time. Or you had to actually go make a sacrifice, depending on what actually took place. 
Here's how that chapter ends. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. They had a daily reminder of their condition and God's holiness. They were inundated with this message when you read the rest of the book of Leviticus. The whole book of Leviticus is just really like that. (laughs) You're like, man, wow, that is a pretty heavy system of staying right in good standing with God. They needed to sacrifice again and again and again and again when they sinned or became unclean. A few years ago, we were doing a series of sermons through the book of Leviticus, and we introduced a fictional Jewish guy named Jacob. And Jacob, somebody, actually somebody mentioned to me this week, said, man, that really was effective for me to sort of see a guy, you know, a Jacob that, like, you know what, I, man, I was really ugly to my wife today, and I sinned in the way I communicated to my wife and family, and I need to go out there, and I need to grab a lamb, and I need to trudge on off to, i got to find a unblemished one, first of all, and then i got to trudge on off to the tabernacle or the temple, depending on where you place Jacob in time. And thinking about, man, if Jacob is like me, he better have a big flock of some really nice sheep. And he better have a lot of time on his hands, because it's going to be a lot of work. And thinking, man, he is a visual aid of sort of the 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 work of the system. It's a blessing that God gave them a way to be in good standing with him. But man, what a chore. Gracious sakes alive. A dwin- just imagine a dwindling flock. You're like, oh, well, I'm kind of running low. <laughs> or just the amount of time involved with that. Even being a good Jew. Shoes worn out. Just walking back and forth. Priest shows up, there you are again, Jacob. Golly, I wish you would take a break. Just take a nap for a while or something where you don't sin. (laughs) If it had been possible for the Levitical system in the order of Aaron to get it done, why would they need a priest of another line? If it had been possible, as awesome as that way was that God gave them, If it had been possible, why would they need another line? In verse 19, it says, The law made nothing perfect. That law, that reference there, is to the law about the Mosaic law regarding the succession of the priesthood to the Levites. It's not talking about the law in the sense where Paul might talk about the law in Romans. That would be a nice application, but that's not what he's talking about. He uses very strong words about the Levitical system and about this law concerning the secession in verse 18. He calls this weakness and uselessness. He calls that system in this context weak and useless. And in context, he's saying in terms of perfecting the worshiper because it's so temporary and so incomplete Because Aaron and the Levites were temporary and incomplete. And their sacrifices were temporary and incomplete. Israel needed a new and better hope. Because perfection wasn't attainable by the Levitical priests and their sacrifices. As fine as they were, it was not attainable. And the Hebrews preacher says, man, Hebrews church, we have a better hope. Mm. We have a better hope through which we draw near to God. And the work of this high priest, of this order of Melchizedek, makes perfect. In quality alone, this sacrifice is fine. If you just looked at just the quality of it, the effectiveness of it, it covers your sins once, past, present, and future forevermore? Man, that is a fine sacrifice. You mean this sin? Yes, that sin. Let that hit you for a minute. Your dark secrets. Yes, that sin. And quality alone, man, it's fine. 
Because it makes perfect, it makes complete, it makes you in right standing before your creator. Man, that is a beautiful thing. If you just think just quality alone, no other priest, no other sacrifice ever did this, no matter how fine it was. But Christ did. In terms of quality, man, it's better. In terms of permanence, it's better. When he said it's finished on the cross, he wasn't just saying, hey, this whole agony thing, it's over and I'm done, kaput. He's saying the sacrificial work is finished. In a permanence sense, that work, his sacrifice, his work is finished. The day of atonement for ancient Israel, for us, is the lifetime of atonement. I thought about the day of atonement must have felt like it just came too soon every year, like taxes. Like, you mean taxes are here already? I got to do, I felt like yesterday I did my taxes. Anybody else feel that? Am I the only person feel that way? Like, seriously, it's tax time already? That must have been the way that they, it's day of atonement time already? Oh, man, it seemed like yesterday the Day of Atonement was here. Man, it's not a day for us. It's a lifetime of atonement. That sacrifice was that fine, is that fine. There's no expiration date on his sacrifice. No expiration date. The emphasis here is that he is a priest forever he doesn't croak he was victorious over that remember he lives he lives right man he's a priest forever the final lamb has gone to slaughter Jacob sit and rest and enjoy that sacrifice Jacob sit down and enjoy Christ with me with us because he's better Man, Christ is better than anything that you can consider falling back on. Yes, he's better than Judaism. It may not be a threat for any of you. But you may have some other threats. Some things you might consider falling back on. I'm telling you, Christ is better than even what God blessed Israel with in the past. He's better than anything the world can offer. He's just better. And he's the only way to draw near to God. All they had to do to draw near to God, the festivals, the sacrifices, the work, the worn out shoes, the dwindling flocks, all they had to do to draw near to God. And I use draw near really loosely, like a bunch of fugitives standing out around the tabernacle listening for the bell as Aaron's in there getting the work done. I hope he doesn't fail. All they had to do to draw near to God, and man, we can approach the throne of grace boldly and confidently because this sacrifice, this priest is so fine and so sublime. Man, we can come right to God because our living high priest's work was that fine and that final. Amen? (laughs) Yes. There's no veil. There's no festival for us. Every day is a feast. Every day is a festival. Access is unlimited. There's no priest that has to get cleaned up for you anymore. That you have to hope he doesn't get it wrong. Because it's done. Man. This message, I think, is about relationship. It's about a relationship with God. It has no to-do list for you. There's no to-do list for you right now in this point of the sermon as I'm closing it out. Then there is a to-do list for you after you've ended a beautiful evening, date night with your wife or gal, men, or with your husband, ladies. You don't end a date night figuring out what you need to go do. You end a date night just having enjoyed each other. And that's the focus of this big people food we had this morning, just enjoying Jesus. I don't have a to-do list for you. 
There's nothing wrong with some to-dos, man. We have those sermons that are very, hap- very application-oriented. But then we have sermons like today that, man, just enjoy. That's the only to-do. Just enjoy the better high priest. Enjoy the better order of Melchizedek. Enjoy the better hope. We could do with some time just enjoying Jesus as better than good. Right? We could do with some time enjoying Jesus as better than good. And certainly better than lots of things we try to substitute for him. We're going to distribute our elements here in a moment. And I want to go ahead and pray. And then we'll have a supper that is, I hope, in keeping and is fitting with the time that we spent together this morning. God, we are so thankful that we can approach your throne right now. That we don't have to have a certain time of the year. It's not a special festival. It's not a special occasion. We don't have to have an unblemished little lamb beside us right now and a sharp knife. God, I'm so thankful that our access to you isn't dependent on anything that I've done or not done or anything the other elders have done or not done or anything that any of the shepherds of each family has done or not done, but that our access to you right now is because of how fine and final your son's work was for us and that it is perfect and complete and available access that we can approach you boldly and with confidence is a wonderful thing, God, and we are so thankful. We enjoy our groom together this morning. He is beautiful and great. In Christ's name we pray, amen.